Psalm 7 today. Psalm 7. We're on this journey that's going to take us a really long time over the next few years, walking through every psalm in the book of Psalms. So we're in Psalm 7. In Psalm 7. We're going to take a pause at some point, uh, and we're going to jump into the Gospel of Luke. Um, but Psalm 7 this morning, if you want to turn there. And as you're turning there, I uh, just want to make mention, it may mention it at the start of the service, but the flowers here um, behind me, uh, those are in honor of Drew Davis. Uh, many of you knew Drew here in our church family, and she passed away uh, nearly one week ago uh, to the hour. Um, she was supposed to be here in service, uh, but at that moment she was taking her last breath and went to be with Christ. And so we had her funeral here this week, and, and the florist was so kind to keep the flowers um, looking really nice and brought them back so we could have them here in service. So it's an honor to, um, and to remember Drew, uh, which we will miss him. So I just want you to know what the flowers are behind me today. Psalm 7. Psalm 7. Uh, there's a lot going on in Psalm 7. I feel like there's just a lot going on in every psalm, and there is. And we're going to learn something about God, something about God, and it's going to take us all the way to the cross, and then it's going to get us all the way to ordinary life. Your life, my life today. So let's jump in. We're going to start Psalm 7. Uh, depending on your translation, you're going to have, you're going to have here some subheading. We, we, most of these uh, psalms have a subheading. These are not part of the original text, but they came in hundreds of years later. But they're part of this established tradition of the text. And we see that this is some type of prayer, some type of song of David, which is saying to the Lord concerning Cush a Benjaminite. Now, scholars for years have been trying to figure out what, what, are, what is the subheading talking about? Who is this Cush, a Benjaminite? No one knows. We do not know exactly the context for when this was written. It's not like, we, we know, we, it's not like that subtitle that said this is when David was running from his son Absalom when Absalom was trying to take over the throne. We just don't know. It could be the moment where Absalom was trying to take over the throne because the Benjaminites were involved and they were very angry with David. It could be that this could be when Saul was trying to kill David. King Saul trying to ki kill David before David had taken the throne because Saul was a Benjaminite. We just don't know. What we do know is that something is happening in David's life where he needs God's help. Let's pick up verse 1. And along the way, we'll just pause along the way to make comments. Lord, my God, David starts, Lord, my God, I take refuge in you. Save and deliver me from all who pursue me. Or they will tear me apart like a lion and rip me to pieces with no one to rescue me. Right off the bat, we have another psalm where David begins with a cry. It's a cry for help. Because at this point, what we do know is that someone is pursuing David. There, it may be a someone, it may be a group of people, but there are enemies pursuing David. And most likely what we have here is the enemies are accusing David of something. They're accusing him, and that accusation is, is actually quite a serious accusation being laid at the feet of King David. But the enemies are pursuing, and if they had their way, they will rip them apart. Now, what exactly is going on? We don't know, but we know David's crying for help. And in Psalm 3, Psalm 4, and Psalm 5, these are all psalms we've studied, the same kind of cry comes out of the mouth of David at the beginning of the prayer. So this is not like a new cry coming from David. 
So let's continue. Why in this particular moment does he pray this way? Well, we'll jump into verse 3 through 5. His prayer continues. Lord my God, if I have done this, and there is guilt on my hands, if I have repaid an ally with evil or without cause, have robbed my foe, then let my enemy pursue and overtake me. Let him trample my life to the ground and make me sleep in the dust. So here's something a bit different we haven't seen in the, in the Psalms up to this point. David now declares to God his innocence. What he's being accused of, David wants to make very clear to God, I haven't done what they say I have done. And if I have, then let, let them do what they will to me. Grind me into the ground. If I've done that, then, then, then there's no reason to save me. But in this instance, David says, I am innocent. Imagine you have felt that way at some point where what you are being accused of is nowhere close to the truth. Here David cries out to God, I am innocent. And if I'm not innocent, then let the judgment come. But I am innocent in this case. He continues, verse 6, Arise, Lord, in your anger. Rise up against the rage of my enemies. Awake, my God, decree justice. Three times there, verse 6. Arise, rise up, and awake. Three times God, uh, David calls God to action. And really this is a call for God to do something. Like, hey God, I am being attacked. I am innocent of what they say. Now would you stand up and would you bring justice? It's a serious call to God because God's a God of justice. And he goes on. The prayer continues. Verse 7. Let the assembled peoples gather around you while you sit enthroned over them on high. Let the Lord judge the peoples. Vindicate me, Lord, according to my righteousness, according to my integrity, O Most High. Bring to an end the violence of the wicked and make the righteous secure. You, the righteous God who probes minds and hearts. Here David uh, now calls God to hold court. Not just at God. Now, would you just would you convene your holy court? You are enthroned. You are the judge. You actually know every heart and mind. No one gets away with secret things. You know all things. Would you just like hold court and bring my enemies into the court? And would you then bring your judgment? Now, maybe you're you're seeing what I'm seeing in these verses. There's this really interesting part of those verses that we should at least acknowledge. There in verse 8, he says to, he asks God, would you vindicate me, he says, according to my righteousness, my integrity. That's real interesting. That's a pretty bold thing to say. Declare me innocent because of my righteousness. David's not a righteous guy. Nor does he carry lots of integrity. Not when he brought in Bathsheba into his, into his room and used his positional authority to sleep with her. And then, to have her husband come back to town and then ultimately have him killed. This is not righteousness. It's probably one of the first time David had messed up. So what would he be referring to when he says, my righteousness and my integrity? I think what we have to do here is just apply some, a basic rule of biblical interpretation. We take this, these two things in the context of the whole. Most likely what David's referring to when he refers to my righteousness and my integrity is the same thing he's referring to in verse 3 through 5. That he is innocent of the thing he's being accused of. 
Not that he is perfect, because we could read those things as saying, God, vindicate me because I'm perfect and I don't mess up. I am righteous and full of integrity. Most likely what we have here is David repeating verses 3 through 5 in just a condensed, uh, in, in a, in a condensed version. This is a way of him again saying he is innocent of what he's being accused of. So vindicate him from the accusations brought against him because he has not done nor acted in the way he's being accused of. All right. We move on. Now, after calling God to hold court, this righteous judge, he says this, My shield is God most high, who so saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge, a God who displays his wrath every day. If he does not relent, he'll, he'll sharpen his sword, he'll bend and string his bow. He has prepared his deadly weapons. He makes ready his flaming arrows. In short here, David's confident. David's confident. Finally, at this point in the prayer, God's going to do something. There is wrath that God will bring. And why is he so confident? One scholar says it this way, just more concisely than I would. Here's what one commentator says about this. He says, David here is noting, Yahweh is the righteous judge who protects the godly with his saving shield, and he judges the wicked in his wrath. There is such a thing as God's wrath. Now, I know we don't like to talk about it. It seems too mean. It seems a bit uncomfortable. Who wants a God full of wrath? But here the Scripture is very clear. God will bring wrath against the evil. God does not just bring wrath against evil things. Evil people. Evil people. So, God will bring wrath. And one way God brings wrath, one way God brings wrath is He turns the, he turns the evil of the wicked into a boomerang. Here's the imagery. Here's how He describes God's wrath, verse 14 through 16, as we get near the end of the psalm. Whoever is pregnant with evil, conceives trouble, gives birth to disillusionment. Whoever digs a hole and scoops it out falls into the pit they have made. The trouble they cause recoils on them. Their violence comes down on their own heads. So as they, as they bring their wickedness into the world, as they birth, as they birth evil, that same evil boomerangs back onto them. That is one way in which God's wrath comes into the world is that what you sow, you will reap. That's not karma. That's God's wrath. And that's the way He set up the order of our universe. And so, God's wrath lets the evil that is birthed come right back. It boomerangs back on those that have conceived and given it birth. And David has confidence God will make sure this happens again. These evil people that have brought their accusations, well, that same evil is coming back onto their own heads. He ends verse 17. I give thanks to the Lord because of His righteousness. I will sing the praises of the name of the Lord Most High. He starts with a cry. He ends with praise. Because he knows God will bring justice. He knows it. And he is confident that, that in the midst of his enemies, he can find refuge in the Lord Most High. So that's the psalm. That's Psalm 7. That's Psalm 7. 
But inside that psalm, even as we walk through it and kind of get the lay of the land, I like that's the goal here, just kind of get a lay of the land of the whole flow of the psalm, there are two key themes. Maybe we call them the uh, doctrines, that is, teachings about God that we really need to now unpack. The first and the second, we'll just grab both of them, and I just want you to see them, and then we'll unpack them one at a time. Two key attributes of God, what we might call attributes of God. Here we're dealing with the doctrine of God, trying to understand who God is and how that might look in this psalm. God, as merciful refuge, He's a merciful refuge. And God is a righteous judge. God is righteous judge. Now here's the thing about when, when you begin to pull out these key teachings about God in any passage of Scripture, you then are going to find them woven in other passages of Scripture. We just don't take one Scripture out of context and then build a whole doctrine around it. Well, we've seen it before. Check this out. Chapter 3, I mean Psalm 3. Look at, look at some of the things we were seeing in Psalm 3. Sorry, let's take, let's, let's, let's take 7 first. I got ahead of myself. In 7, he says, Lord, I take refuge in you. Save and deliver me for all. Pursue me. My shield is God most high. Refuge and shield. Refuge and shield. David is confident that in the midst of great danger, he can come to the Lord. Because the Lord is a safe place to go. Okay, so we're going to keep that there. We've seen it already in our short journey through the Psalms. Psalm 3, check this out. Now, this is going to be like a tour de force. Sometimes I do this where I just read lots of Scripture. I want you to feel the Scripture by repetition. So if I see you sleeping, I'm going to call you out. Mary, I'm not looking at you. I'm, I, I just, I, I'm just very aware my line of sight was at you. You're not sleeping. But Jeff, on the other hand, I let Mark go to sleep a long time ago. So here it is. I've got to keep talking or Mark will say something. Um, Psalm 3, we're going to take the first part of verse, um, the A means the first part of verse 3. And then the first part of verse 8, there in that psalm we saw, but you, Lord, are a shield around me. And then in verse 8 he said, from the Lord comes deliverance. So he's very clear that the Lord is a very safe place to come. He will bring protection, a refuge, and it is by God's mercy he provides that. Check out now uh, chapter 4, verse 1, through, 1 and 8. Answer me when I call to you, my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. Then verse 8, In peace I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. In the midst of great danger, he cries out, God, provide protection only by your mercy. The Lord is a safe place to come. A refuge, a shield. I lie down, I sleep in safety. I want you to see the theme. It's, just, it's running through the Psalms up to this point. Then we go to uh, Psalm 5. 11 and 12, but let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them that those who love your name may rejoice in you. Then uh, verse 12, surely, Lord, you bless the righteous. You surround them with your favor as with a shield. So by the time we get to the prayer in Psalm 7, this is a theme we've seen woven into many of the Psalms up to this point, where David cries out to God because he knows God's a safe place to be. He is just flowing with mercy like a never-ending fountain of compassion, and God is right there to take in His people and provide safety. And then probably one of the most 
clear passages. If we just speed up to Psalm 34, Psalm 34, this is one that you could like actually just take this and write it on a card. You can just have this in your Bible, put this in the car, put it on your um, your bathroom mirror. This is one that you can pray straight off from the Scriptures. I mean, literally, just pray it straight as is to God. It's so chock full of God, merciful refuge. Here it is, Psalm 34, 1-4. In you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. Turn your ear to me. Come quickly to my rescue. Be my rock of refuge, a strong fortress to save me. Since you are my rock and my uh, my fortress, for the sake of your name, lead and guide me. Keep me free from the trap that is set for me. You are my refuge. That's a lot of repetition on that same theme. And the reason I say this is a great prayer is because if you've ever felt like people have come against you, you're struggling because of the forces that are bringing suffering, this is a great prayer. God, I'm going to lean in to you for my safety. I call on you, my rock. I call on you to surround me with your favor. You are my shield, my refuge. This, the start of Psalm 34 is just, um, it's just a passage you can take with you for the rest of your life as a believer. So right there, right there, just in the Psalms. I mean, I'm not picking up any other passages of the Scriptures. We don't have time for that. Right there, we see this theme, this doctrine of God. God is merciful refuge. Right there, woven into just these first few Psalms. And it's embedded right here in Psalm 7, which is where we launched this morning. But you've got that other theme rolling right next to it. It's woven. These are woven together in Psalm 7. God is a righteous judge. Take a look. I just, we'll go back into Psalm 7, verse 11 and 12. God is a righteous judge, a God who displays his wrath every day. He does not relent. He will sharpen his sword. He will bend and string his bow. This is a God who is serious about bringing justice. And sometimes that means removing evil people. This is a God who's going to bring wrath. He is a righteous judge. Now, we should not be surprised at this. Because the book of Psalms launches, launches, with the contrast between the righteous and the wicked. And the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Then we, got, we get to Psalm 2, and, and we have this declaration that God has anointed His King on earth, and everyone will submit to Him. But there are some who said, I'm not submitting. I'm my own God. We're going to break off the chains that you have put on us. We're going to do it our way. Cue Frank Sinatra. Okay, so I wish I would have done it. I just had that thought. Holy Spirit moment, maybe. I don't know. Like, man, that would have been great. Okay, if you like Frank Sinatra, no judgment. I, that wasn't my point. You get it. But the, these nations, these kings of these nations say, we'll do it our way. And we get to the end of Psalm 2 and we saw this in Psalm 2. Right here. Serve the Lord with fear. Celebrate His rule with trembling. Kiss His Son. Or He will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. His wrath can flare up in a moment. If you decide to live your way, If you rebel against the king of the world, you will face judgment. That's not mean. That's just reality. You cannot be all about you and come into the presence of the God who is holy love. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who from eternity have always been about loving one another, always rooted in the deepest humility. Humility we do not yet understand. 
this holy love, when you bring selfishness in to that dance of holy love, selfishness, pride, wickedness will be cast out. It'll be cast out every day of the week. Just like if a person brings evil against someone innocent, we all would stand to protect the innocent. What do you call that? In human terms, we still call it wrath. We call that justice. And when you bring human rebellion, when you bring selfishness and pride into the presence of this holy God, it will be cast out. And the Bible has a lot of different ways of describing that. And one is his anger flares up. His wrath is poured out. Every human who lives their way on their own terms, eventually they will find destruction. That's just the way this is. It's right there, Psalm 2. It's also here in the next Psalm we see as we roll in through Psalm 5, we saw it. For you are not a God, David prayed, who is pleased with wickedness. For you, with you, evil people are not welcome. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies. Right there, woven, woven into Psalm 5. This is a theme we've already been tracking, even in our short journey in the book of Psalms. So, these two things, these two doctrines are right there in Psalm 7. God is a merciful refuge, and He's a righteous judge. Those two sit intermingled in Psalm 7, just as they do many of the Psalms we've already looked at. The modern world has a very hard time with this. Let me just say it this way, we'll just, so we can be concise. Modern skepticism says this. Either God is merciful, or He is a righteous judge who pours out His wrath. He can't be both. He can't be both. You probably have heard this. Where you are given, you are giving this, this scenario where either God is angry and mean or God is loving and tolerant and accepting of all things because that's what a loving, compassionate God would do. And they say, well, then either, the God, either, either God is, is this God of wrath in the Old Testament and then, or He's the God of Jesus and full of love in the New Testament. And they, we pit the Old and the New against one another. We pit these two doctrines against one another. Surely God can't be a God of wrath and a God of love at the same time. You can't have them. You can't have it both ways. I'm sure you've heard this. Maybe you struggle with it inside yourself too. How do these two intermingle? Here's my reply. I decided to go ahead and write it instead of just try to give you another five minutes of explanation. Here it is. Modern skeptics, I believe, are trying to separate what Scripture never pulls apart. There's no contradiction between God's mercy and His justice. And we see this most clearly in Christ on the cross. So here, here in Psalm 7, are these two doctrines, God as merciful refuge, pouring out of compassion. Here's this God who is a safe, a safe refuge, a fortress around, the, uh, around His people. Here is this God full of love, and here's this God of wrath and judgment and justice. And here in Psalm 7, they are intermingled, never por- torn apart. And you wonder, how can that be in the same psalm? It takes us all the way to the cross. It's at the cross that God showed the immense fountain of His love and at the same time His immense judgment against sin. Now, I'm not making that up. 
I didn't just like sit around one day and it come to me in a vision. I just read the scriptures. And right here in Romans chapter 3, Paul says it somewhat clearly. Romans 3, verse 25 through 26, Paul says this. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Now, he did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. On the cross, God both displays his justice and he is the one who brings the justification. On the cross, God's immense love is poured out. It is poured out in a way where Jesus, because of His love, goes to the cross for His people and the wrath of God is poured out on Christ to pay the sins of His people. Both justice. Sin was dealt with. Why? Because of His great love for His people. Both of those things are intermingled right there in the cross of Christ. Psalm 7, as many other psalms will do, draw us to Christ. So why can you have confidence that you have a refuge in God? Because your sin has been paid for at the cross. And that was no small payment. Here's some application. Let's just draw down two applications. I'm not fire and brimstone preacher, but every once in a while, i got to put my toe in it. Judgment day is coming. Listen, there's going to be a judgment day. One of the things we were, I was just talking to someone about this, uh, this week, um, someone that their sin had been exposed, and we were talking about this. And I said, here's the thing. Just in the natural order of the way the world has been set up by God, when you plant dark, evil, wicked, selfish, proud, this list, this is word, 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 you just, when you do any of that, when you plant those seeds in the heart through habits, it will grow. And one day, the fruit will show. You can't hide your sin forever. That's right, you can hide it for a little bit until it takes root. And when it takes root, it will actually have you in slavery. And there will come a day where you can't stop it. Something I heard someone say one time was, habit eats your willpower for breakfast. Habits will eat your willpower for breakfast. You might have some willpower initially, but eventually addiction and all the darkness that you plant in the human heart will come out. Just like a seed planted in the ground. You don't see it for a while until you do. And one day, God's justice will roll, will, what's that? sorry, I just, I'm thinking Amos, I'm thinking that famous passage of Amos and it's not coming to me, so don't worry, I got it wrong. Justice is going to flow, let's go with flow. Justice is going to flow through the world, and for some, his justice will be life. It will be life-giving, because our justice, for those in Christ, our justice was at the cross, and we will glory in the cross and his resurrection. And there will be a whole other group of people when judgment comes one day where it will be terror and they will be shown for who they are and they will live away from God forever and ever. 
do not carry the image of some dude in a spandex with horns carrying a pitchfork. We're talking about life without light. And that's a very scary thought. Judgment day is coming. So if you do not know Christ, you need Christ. And I don't want to be so flippant to think that everyone in this room knows Christ. If you do not know Christ, you need Christ. Why would you wait another minute you come to Christ today? He is your Savior. I feel like I've got to say that. Because I don't know your heart. I don't know all your hearts. I don't even know my heart very well. You come to Christ. And so I would say to you, if you do not know Christ, I would say to you, as you come to Christ, I'd say that thing that, that Paul was told. Paul had a vision of Jesus. God had, had regenerated him. Like something happened. He saw Christ, but then he was blinded. And he, he went. He went and, and he hung out at this house for several days. And then a guy came to him and he said this to Paul. I'd say this to you. He said this, Acts twenty two sixteen. And now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash, wash your sins away calling on His name. That's my call to you. That's my fire and brimstone. Judgment day is coming. Psalm 7 makes this very clear. Uh, Second thing. Second thing is this. God really is our refuge because He has dealt with our sin. So there's this this uh, problem, challenge, struggle. It could probably be all of those things that we as Christians, I think, sometimes carry with us. We think, well... God probably doesn't want to hear what I'm struggling with. Not when there are all these other big things going on in the world. Like, when there's world hunger, why would God want to hear about me struggling with, like, liking this person? Like, God probably doesn't want to hear that. We must disabuse ourselves of the idea that God does not want to hear from us. God is your refuge with any problem you have. I don't care how small that problem is. You go to God. You struggling with work and not liking someone at work? You go to God and say, God, I need help because I'm struggling. You're struggling with, with, struggling with some type of addiction? You take that to God. It's not too small. I often think that sometimes my struggle with eating too much, which really, look at me. It's not like I just balloon. I, I, okay, you don't even know I struggle with eating. Because like, I can eat a lot, a lot. Amen. But it's not good for me to be full throttle everything I want. Because when that happens in eating, it starts to happen in every part of my life. But that does seem a bit silly, doesn't it? Me, at my weight, talking about struggling with eating, really? Until it is put into the spiritual realm and understood as this much larger thing. But it does seem silly, but I still need to go to God and say, God, sometimes I struggle. It's not too small to take to God. The things you think too small, you take them to God. There is nothing off limits. There is nothing off limits that you can't take to God. You take Him every struggle you have. So with that, here's one way I want to. I, I'm going to suggest you do it because I feel like this one needs to get concrete. Because I'm still a bit abstract right now. I feel like I'm still talking super spiritual language right now. Here's something I think we could do. Just try it out. Try it out. Maybe, maybe I'm off. Try it out. I've been trying it. It seems to be working. At least helping me a bit. Here's the next step. Pray with your hands open and palms up and name your worries to God and ask God for strength and help. There is nothing super spiritual about this. What I'm suggesting is that you actually use your body to help you, help your mind understand the reality 
about God. So literally, when, when you pray like this, like you're doing something. Like if you get mad at someone and want to throat punch them, what do you do? You clench your fists. Okay, your body is expressing something you're feeling. So I don't know why I went there, um, but I did. Um, um, use your body to help you understand this deep truth about God. Just open your hands. So when you pray, open your hands and then say out loud, God, I'm worried about my kid. God, I'm worried about being mean in the morning because I'm not getting any sleep. God, I need help sleeping. Like, whatever. I don't know. And just say it out loud and then say, God, help me. Now, at this point, I don't know what God's going to do. I don't have like a magic ball where I know God's going to give you this answer. But I know this. I know when we come open-handed to God, that is training the mind to bring any and every worry, and we get it out of our mouths to say, God, help me. You are my refuge. God has a way of using those things to actually change the heart. So this week, why don't you just try, when you get stressed out, when you get worried, when you get angry, any of those things, go to God as your refuge. And the way to do that practically is just just right there, open up a hand. Maybe if you're driving, open up one hand. Um, just open up a hand and say the thing, say the thing that you're struggling with. And then say, God help me. And then let, let God do whatever else he's going to do. The other option is to think you've got it all under control. And you think you can figure it out on your own. And I'm going to tell you, that's never worked for me. And I imagine if we ask those older than me in the room, probably never worked for you either. All right. Let's pray. Father, we come, we just open-handed, and whatever worry we have, we know you love us because you paid for our sin. And if you're willing to pay for our sin at the cross through the death of your Son, well, then you can help us with all of our small worries and struggles, be our refuge, and help us. We come open-handed. In the name of Christ our Lord, Amen.